Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Russia's Sputnik Radio, Radio Havana Cuba, and NHK World Radio Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Olaf Scholz was sworn in as the new German Chancellor. Biden and Putin spoke for two hours to defuse tension over Russian troops on the border with Ukraine. The global arms trade recorded a growth in profits last year despite the COVID economic downturn. The United Nations reports that a million children could die of hunger in Afghanistan this winter. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Germany has a new chancellor. Today, the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz took the oath of office and took the reins of power from Angela Merkel. It was a moment in which political history was written right here in Berlin. Merkel, the most powerful woman in the world, handed over all of her authority in the first transfer of power in 16 years. Her successor tonight, promising Germany a new beginning. A buildup of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine has many on both sides of the Atlantic worried that the Kremlin is planning a full-scale invasion. U.S. President Joe Biden and the Russian leader Vladimir Putin have just wrapped up two hours of virtual talks aimed at diffusing the tensions. Moscow categorically denies that it's planning to attack. The U.S. is threatening severe economic consequences if Russia does indeed invade Ukraine. Joint military exercises with the Ukrainian and U.S. armies in the Black Sea. Images like these anger Russian President Putin. And this right before a video summit with U.S. President Biden, where Putin wants a promise from the West that Ukraine will not join NATO. We will insist on concrete agreements to rule out the possibility of NATO expanding even further east and deploying weapons systems that threaten us close to Russian territory. Whether Ukraine would even be offered a NATO membership is not clear, but according to polls, more than half of Ukrainians are in favor. In the fight against the Russian-backed rebels, Ukraine relies on weapons from NATO countries, anti-tank defenses from the U.S. and drones from Turkey. U.S. President Biden supports Ukraine, and any Russian military action against Ukraine would be met with harsh economic penalties. Five European states, including Germany, also called on Russia to respect Ukraine's sovereignty. The arms trade recorded a growth in profits last year despite the COVID-19 economic downturn. That's according to a new report from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Top weapons firms saw profits rise by 1.3% on 2019 to a record $531 billion. This despite the global economy contracting by more than 3%. 
Now to Afghanistan. In four months after the Taliban takeover there, uh, the country is facing a growing economic and humanitarian crisis, and many people are now homeless. More than half the population could go hungry this winter. The United Nations says without international support, as many as a million children could die. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. Next, Sputnik Radio. On his program called Going Underground, Afshin Ratansi interviewed Professor Kahindi Andrews about his new book called the New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. He discusses how the queen and royal family are the premier symbol of white supremacy, the racist worldview that informed Enlightenment thinking, and how it brought genocide and colonialism to people of color around the world their suffering being integral to the Industrial Revolution and the absence of this history from Western curricula and how the same forces of colonialism and racism still dominate the world today. Sputnik Radio. On this day, 156 years ago, the end of legal slavery was ratified by the U.S. Congress through the 13th Amendment. However, the global power and economic system remains shackled to a racist colonial logic axiomatically linked to the so-called Enlightenment, which fostered genocide. So argues Professor Kahinda Andrews, author of The New Age of Empire and How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. He joins me now from the infamous slave town of Birmingham in England. But I better just ask you quickly about Barbados, which uh, you delineate the genocide there of the Kalinago uh, people in this new book. Uh, you say Her Majesty may be the premier symbol of uh, whiteness on the planet, Barbados, of course, which just became a republic. Why? It's obviously, Barbados has been independent for, what, 50 years almost. And the idea that he still kept this this queen, this, who is the primary symbol of white supremacy in the world, right? The British Empire, those links, um, what that means to a place like Barbados, which was Britain's first slave colony. I mean, really, this is just not really news. This should have happened a long time ago. The real question is, why, why do we still have the queen as head of state? A place like Jamaica, where my family's from, of, of, of the Commonwealth. I mean, it's, it's just a bad time that this, that this monarchy was removed from countries like Barbados, I would say. You talk about Immanuel Kant as an architect of racist uh, philosophy. He was used as the justification for colonial genocides that preceded him and went on after and go on to say, you could say similar things about Voltaire, Hegel, right up to Darwin, right up to Keynes and his uh, attitude about the IMF being able to be used uh, in case uh, a monkey house was created in uh, former colonies. What have you got against uh, the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment is just white supremacy with good PR, right? I mean, the very idea, the notion that, you, that knowledge spread out of Europe in the 18th century and enlightens the rest of the world tells you that it's completely PR. This is not true. It's completely false. And actually, the, the knowledge that we get from the Enlightenment is one uh, which is the knowledge of white supremacy. So someone like Immanuel Kant, for example, who is the, the, the intellectual philosopher for our current framework of human rights, wasn't just a racist. This was somebody who actually advised slave owners in the Americas on how best to beat Africans, because he actually genuinely fundamentally believed that I was not a full human being because of my blackness, that I couldn't approach rationality because of my blackness, and that he was better, superior, could understand the world in a better, more reasonable way because of his whiteness. I mean, that's the people we're talking about when we're defending the Enlightenment. 
at the end of his life, he comes to the conclusion that slavery is bad, colonialism is bad, um, and creates this universal rights framework, which we still have. Um, but he doesn't think we're human beings, right? He doesn't think we're still fully deserving of the full rights. What we get is the right to life. In a very similar way, as I would say, you shouldn't uh, poach gorillas. I don't think gorillas are human beings. I just don't think you should poach them and kill them. And that's effectively what he says with this human rights framework, which is the right to life. Doesn't give you the right to equality. Doesn't give you the right to prosperity. Doesn't give you the right to have all your stuff that has been stolen from you, given back to you in reparations. The problem with the Enlightenment is that it takes, the, it takes till the 18th century to have this, this conceit that Europe is the, is the best. Because of 200 years of just violence, right? 1492 unleashes the biggest genocide in human history where 60 to 70 million people are erased from the face of the earth to conquer the Americas. That then triggers slavery again, massively un, unparalleled um, abuses of, of, of both human rights, although we weren't seen to be human at the time. Um, and the wealth that's generated from that then creates this, this illusion that Europe is superior. And so the Enlightenment were actually drawing on, the Enlightenment thinkers were drawing on African knowledge, Arabic knowledge, Chinese knowledge, but it had actually been whitewashed, like literally whitewashed. So when, when the Spanish defeat the Moors, they start burning books with all this Arabic knowledge in, and they, they, but before they burn them, they translate them into Latin and change all the names. So it's generally possible that the Enlightenment thinkers actually thought all knowledge came from Europe because that was what they were reading, right? That was what they were told. So it's this, it's this whole myth of whiteness of supremacy that is only possible because of those centuries of colonial violence, which allows that intellectual conceit to exist. I mean, Malcolm, my absolute favorite, uses all these documents when he founds the Organization of or American Unity and says that we want the West to live up to its, to its values. The problem with that is in those documents, we are, we are not humans, right? We're not seen to be human beings, which is why you can have a constitution of the United States that says all men are created equal and it's a bunch of slave owners, right? Because they don't see us as being human. Most of the world actually live in conditions that we have no experience of. One of the startling facts that I came across in the book was a child born in Somalia today has more chance of dying before their fifth birthday than a soldier had of dying in the Vietnam War. I mean, that's the conditions we're talking about. So if we were to accept that we have all this prosperity because children die by the second, then we'd have to end the whole thing, right? So the system depends on that same colonial logic. And so we have to pretend, we have to, we have to cancel, we have to miss out all those bits to keep us comfortable, because otherwise we'd have to change something, right? So again, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank you single out as being more of the same, well, de facto apologist for racist enlightenment policy. So presumably that, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about uh, developing countries because of the loans. It's, a, it's an Enlightenment 2.0, right? That's, that's what I call it in the book. Like, there's, there is this idea that the West can be the solution, right? And we have this whole industry, and the development industry is, is the perfect one, where some of it's changed. So nowadays, they don't necessarily talk about evolutionary ladders, because they used to talk about it very clearly. Like, there's a process countries go through, and they can become like the West if you just follow these, these mechanisms. Um, but the reality is that the West can't be the solution to these problems, because the West... It's the cause of the problems. Like, why is the child mortality rate so high in Somalia? You can't explain that with their history and the present, right? When organizations like the IMF in particular get involved in countries, all the evidence is it's bad for the country. It's not good for the country. It's terrible for the country. So what's happening in this is there's an intervention in the economy, but it's actually making things worse in those countries. And one of the things we complain about a lot here is austerity, privatization, neoliberalism. Well, that's what they've been doing in Africa, Asia, South America for the last 50 years, right? To keep them in debt, to keep them locked down and to keep, the, uh, keep them poor. So actually, well, the IMF, World Bank, UN, all of these, USAID, UK aid, 
They are the, the new mechanisms of, of, of Western imperialism. They keep black and brown people poor so that white people can be rich. It's not just the IMF, it is the new class and echelon of people of color that are uh, created in these developing countries that carry out colonial enterprise. Oh yeah, totally. And this is not a new thing either. I think one of the things we, we miss sometimes is the, like, take the British Empire, for example, the largest empire that ever existed, hundreds of millions of people, slavery, colonialism, all these terrible things, right? That could not have existed without countless black and brown people managing and administering empire. Couldn't, wouldn't have been possible, right? There's always people, when you set up a system of racism or oppression, there's always going to be people who take the best option they can for themselves and, and help to administer it. So India is a great example. Uh, at the height of the British Empire, the, the, the British army in India was mostly Indian people, right? So something like the Amritsar massacre, where the army just went and killed like civilians, men, women, and children. Many of those soldiers were Indian. They were Sikh, right? It wouldn't, the empire, racism, slavery, wouldn't have been possible without those people who are black and brown collaborating. So today, when we see the same thing happening, and we see countries like China, where China just become maybe just as bad as the West, and certainly the same logics. When you see the corrupt uh, leaders in Africa, places like that, when you see the, the, the politicians like we have in our, in our parliament right now, in our government right now, it's not a new thing. We shouldn't be overly impressed uh, black and brown people in the Boris Johnson cabinet or Kamala Harris in uh, the White House. What's happening nowadays, particularly, and in the States is no different than here, is there's actually the, the real identity politics is getting black and brown people to say and do things which are anti-black and brown people. That's identity politics, right? And, and that's that. But again, that's not new. That's been going on for a long time as well. You're talking about sums of money that would bankrupt the United States and Britain completely if they had to pay reparations to their former uh, colonies, surely, and, and former uh, countries where they took slaves from. If Asia, Africa were as, as rich as the West, capitalism would end, literally end tomorrow. It's only because you can steal resources from the African continent for nothing. It's only because you can, say, you can get sweatshop labor in China and India for nothing that this economy functions. So even if it could possibly work and you did make the world equal, the whole economic system would collapse. This should be a reminder that we need a new political and economic system. Um, and there are no reparations that can be paid uh, to fix that problem. Uh, you talk about in the book that it is the fear of revolution that is the chief motivator of elites, whether it be the National Health Service, whether it be anything. What do you mean by it is that fear of revolution that uh, has been the motivator of every bit of progress we've ever had? The idea of social democracy and the, the you know the the welfare state it's only it's only a small part of history really we've had this after the Second World War. And it is brought on by the fear of communism. There is a genuine fear of communism. You've got, you've got the East, you've got Russia, you've got people arising, and they have to give things over. It's actually really interesting. If you read the um, Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, there's a list of things he wants. About half of them happen, right? Because there's a concession to power. We are terrified of, of communist revolution. Therefore, we will give you education. We'll give you uh, some benefits. We'll give you housing, et cetera, et cetera, to keep you calm, effectively. Same way, how do you get independence in, in African countries? It's when you have people take up arms, take up revolutionary arms. So the Queen will come and say, okay, we'll, we'll leave you alone. We'll give, we'll give you this appearance of, of, of freedom. And so this is why we're so stuck now. I mean, think about what's happened now and why I always argue we're in a worse position now than we were 50 years ago. We've all kind of bought into this idea there's no alternative. There are no revolutionary movements anymore. 
which is why neoliberalism has creeped and creeped and creeped and creeped across the world. The only way to push that back is to have the fear of revolution. So fear of revolution always leads to concessions. And that's why there's no concessions now, because we're not, we don't have no revolutionary politics. So if anything we need to do, the number one thing we need to do if we want fundamental change is to bring back that, that revolution and to make it something that makes the elite scared. And I guarantee you, that's when you'll start to see the changes happen. Professor Gain Andrews, thank you. That excerpted interview is by Afshin Ratansi from his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available at rt.com and on YouTube, search for Going Underground. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Before the 2020 elections in Bolivia, coup president Añez requested military equipment from the U.S. and U.K., a settlement has been reached in Bolivia over the massacres during the de facto government of Añez. The Confederation of Indigenous of Ecuador has ratified its state of resistance to the right-wing President Lasso. The recently elected left-wing president of Peru says he is the target of media alleging corruption. Radio Havana, Cuba. In the run-up to the 2020 elections in Bolivia, in which Luis Arque was elected president, coup leader Janine Añez requested arms from the United States and the United Kingdom. Roberto Rios, Deputy Minister of Citizen Security, revealed the letters through which the de facto administration of Janine Añez, weeks before the 2020 election, asked the U.S. and U.K. embassies for weapons and ammunition, presumably to, quote, repress the Bolivian people. I ask you to attend to the defense of the integrity of the Bolivian people and its territory, reads the first page of the letter that Anya sent in May 2020 to Bruce Williamson, the diplomatic representative of Washington, before sending another similar official note to the British Embassy in September. In the note, Anya's requested, quote, pistols, cartridges, gas grenades, full uniforms, gas masks, night visors, thermal binoculars, helmets, protective suits and equipment all important for the Bolivian police. In June 2021, The Intercept magazine revealed that the outgoing de facto government of Añez planned to deploy hundreds of U.S. mercenaries to reverse the results of the October 2020 election in that South American country and to prevent Luis Arce from assuming the presidency. The Association of Victims of the Senkata and Sacaba Massacres and the Bolivian government have reached an agreement that includes the creation of a trust fund, as well as regular meetings in order to progress towards reparations. The agreement establishes that the parties will meet every month to evaluate the advances in terms of justice for the victims of the massacres which were carried out during the de facto government presided over by Janine Agnes. Likewise, the victims and the national government agreed to participate in a global plan of psychological and economic reparation, which will help the victims to participate in the productive economy of the country. Following the coup d'etat against Evo Morales, the de facto government repressed demonstrations demanding the re-establishment of the constitution, which resulted in the massacres of Sacaba, located in La Paz, and Sencata in El Alto, where 20 people died and almost 200 were injured.
Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, or CONAI, has ratified its state of resistance given the lack of response from the Ecuadorian government of President Guillermo Lasso to the proposals presented by the Confederation. The indigenous movement and social sectors have been developing proposals on issues of national interest and have begun to dialogue with the government. CONAI reported that six months ago, quote, Guillermo Lasso mocked the harsh reality of thousands of Ecuadorian families without giving an answer. In view of this, we ratify the resistance. Leonardus Isa Salazar, the president of CONAI, wrote, quote, This is how Lasso and a government incapable of responding to the country's economic problems and the legitimate proposals made by the indigenous movement and hundreds of social organizations, this is how they act. We enter the dialogue without renouncing the right to resistance. Pedro Castillo, the president of Peru, has denounced his being the target of a media campaign aimed at linking him to alleged acts of corruption and to removing him from power. The Peruvian president said during a visit to the southern Andean region of Cusco, quote, I'm sure they are plotting many things, audios, videos, and many edited tapes will come out, but what they cannot do is to silence us and distort the efforts of the government. After the public event, Castillo issued statements on the current political situation in the country and was asked about a possible closure of the parliament. The head of state replied, quote, Why do I have to close the Congress? What I'm going to do is to close the poverty gaps. Castillo added, I'm not going to take a step back because I want dignity for our country. The Peruvian president has denounced time and again the attempts of the right wing to launch a coup d'etat and destabilize the country. Brazilian Minister of the Institutional Security Office, the GSI, General Augusto Heleno, has authorized at least seven gold exploration projects in the area of São Gabriel de Cachó Aire, near the border with Venezuela and Colombia, a preserved and untouchable place in the Amazon where 23 indigenous groups live. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6,000, 6060, or 6100. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet, like an online listener in Richmond, Virginia, and the listener of KDRT in Davis, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK Japan. Following the U.S. lead, the U.K., Australia, and Canada are declaring diplomatic boycotts of the Winter Olympics in China. Biden's Summit for Democracy began on Thursday excluding Russia and China, but including Taiwan. China critiqued problems with U.S. democracy. The president of Taiwan is keen to join a U.S.-led economic framework for the Indo-Pacific region. NHK Japan. The Beijing Winter Olympic Games start in less than two months, but an increasing number of countries are announcing so-called diplomatic boycotts over human rights violations in China. Canada has announced it won't be sending government officials there. We are extremely concerned 
by the repeated human rights violations uh, by the Chinese government. Trudeau said on Wednesday his government has been discussing the issue with partners and allies in recent months. Australia and Britain have already said they won't be sending diplomats. The Chinese embassy in London posted a comment on its website about Johnson's decision, saying politicization of sports is a blatant violation of the spirit of the Olympic Charter. A total of four countries have announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. Australia, Britain and Canada followed the U.S. after it made the announcement on Monday. U.S. President Joe Biden is preparing to host the first Summit for Democracy. He's invited leaders from government, civil society and the private sector for talks online over the next two days. A delegate from Taiwan says they hope to share their expertise in dealing with challenges such as disinformation. We appreciate that the United States uh, sees Taiwan as a democratic success story and a force for good in the world. Xiao says Taiwan has the right to be represented internationally. And she says Taiwan is is an inspiration to all people in places where they can't access basic human rights. Taiwan's survival and our security is a cornerstone of the peace and stability of the Indo-Pacific region. Xiao says China's bullying and marginalization of Taiwan is unfair and unjust. She says China continues to propagate the narrative that democracy isn't suitable for Asians or for Hong Kong. But she says Taiwan proves that's wrong. She says Taiwan can share technological expertise. She says artificial intelligence and big data should be used to advance human progress, not as tools of oppression or surveillance. China has released a series of documents pointing out problems with U.S. democracy as U.S. President Joe Biden prepares for a democratic summit later this week. A Chinese university think tank released a similar document on Monday, making clear its stance on countering the U.S. The report, titled 10 Questions for American Democracy, was released by the think tank of the Renmin University of China. It raises questions about American democracy and includes the question, promote unity or lead to division. It goes on to say that instead of promoting unity, democracy is leading to social disorder within the United States while inciting chaos in other nations as the U.S. exports democracy. The United States is bringing division throughout the world through its ideologies at a time when mankind most needs to come together. This has led to discontent in many countries. The latest development comes after the Chinese government's release of a report titled The State of Democracy in the United States the day before. China invited participants from more than 120 countries and regions to a forum held on the theme of democracy on Saturday, where it claimed it had created its own model of democracy. Now, Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, says she's keen to join a new U.S.-led economic framework in the Indo-Pacific. We also look forward to taking part in the recently announced Indo-Pacific economic framework. Tsai spoke at a meeting of U.S. firms in Taiwan. Washington is considering launching the framework with allies and friendly nations as soon as early next year. The move looks aimed at countering China, 
which President Joe Biden's administration sees as the United States' arch-rival. The U.S. had led negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Pact, but former President Donald Trump pulled out of the agreement, and the Biden administration is lukewarm on it. Taiwan applied to join the TPP's successor deal in September, but it's unclear whether it can sign up because China filed its application earlier. Those reports were from NHK Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 7245 and 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.